Well, we've come to the end of our series in the Psalms, and I hope that it has refreshed your heart and refreshed your soul the way that it has mine over the summer. And in two weeks, we'll beginning and we will be beginning a new series in the book of Hebrews. So, if you want to start reading there and praying ahead, we will find out in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is better than everything. But what we'll see today in Psalm 24, is what we have been reminded of over and over again throughout this series this summer, and it's this. There are no good people in this world. Every single human being born into this world has been marred by Adam's sin. So we're all broken, we're all sinners, we're all messed up, but only some of us know that. Only some of us believe that. Some of us still live with the delusion that there are still good people in this world. And I know this because I'm from the South. I grew up in Oklahoma, lived a lot of my life in Texas, and people are just good people there. If you have a flat on the side of the road, four or five cars will stop to help you. And they'll say, bless your heart. So I know what this is like to think that where there's still good people in this world. And that's what the characters in a short story by Flannery O'Connor, were struggling with. They, they all lived with this understanding that there are good people in the world, that there are good country people, even though they couldn't see that everyone was a mess, even them. So in her story, Good Country People, Flannery O'Connor describes an encounter between this Bible salesman who is not really who he says he is. And I'll let you read the story and find out what happens at the end. But it's about this Bible salesman who comes to this house and has this interaction with this mother and her daughter. These two women who live at at opposite ends of the spectrum of life, but with each other. But they they both live like they have their ducks in a row. So we'll begin when the Bible salesman named Manly Pointer shows up at their house. He says this, lady, I've come to speak of serious things. Well, come in, she muttered, none too pleased because her dinner was almost ready. He came into the parlor and sat down on the edge of a straight chair and put the suitcase between his feet and glanced around the room as if he were sizing her up by it. Her silver gleamed on the two sideboards. She decided he had never been in a room as elegant as this. Mrs. Hopewell, he began, using her name in a way that sounded almost intimate. I know you believe in Christian service. Well, yes, she murmured. I know, he said, and paused, looking very wise with his head cocked on one side, that you're a good woman. Friends have told me. Mrs. Hopewell never liked to be taken for a fool. What are you selling, she said. Bibles, the young man said, and his eye raced around the room before he added, I see you have no family Bible in your parlor. I see that is the one lack you got. Mrs. Hopewell could not say, my daughter is an atheist and won't let me keep the Bible in the parlor. She said, stiffening slightly, I keep my Bible by my bedside. This was not the truth. It was in the attic somewhere. Lady, he said, the word of God ought to be in the parlor. Well, I think it's a matter of taste, she began. I think, lady, he said, for a Christian, the word of God ought to be in every room in the house besides in his heart. I know you're a Christian because I can see it in every line of your face. She stood up and said, 
Well, young man, I don't want to buy a Bible, and I smell my dinner burning. He didn't get up. He began to twist his hands, and looking down at them, he said softly, Well, lady, I'll tell you the truth. Not many people want to buy one nowadays, and besides, I know I'm real simple. I don't know how to say a thing but to say it. I'm just a country boy. He glanced up into her unfriendly face. People like you don't like to fool with country people like me. Why, she cried, good country people are the salt of the earth. Besides, we all have different ways of doing. It takes all kinds to make the world go round. That's life. You said a mouthful, he said. Why, I think there aren't enough good country people in the world, she said, stirred. And I think that's what's wrong with it. What's wrong with the world is that the world isn't full of good country people. It's full of sinners. It's full of rebels. The characters in Flannery O'Connor's story all thought that they were good country people, but they were all running from God. They were all trying to live their lives apart from their creator. And what Mrs. Hopewell does not understand is that there are no good people, no good country people in the world. The world is full of broken people Sinners who stand in stark contrast with the holy God of the universe. But the good news of the gospel is that grace comes down to rescue us. To rescue us from us. And that's what we'll see in Psalm 24. We'll be reminded once again of the amazing grace of God. We'll be reminded that even though there are no good country people, there is a good God, a gracious God who wants to be with his people, his broken people. And so our big idea today is simply this. Live low. Grace flows downhill. Now, you've heard me say grace flows downhill before. I got it from an old Presbyterian pastor named Jack Miller who has had a profound impact upon my life. And what he means by this and what Psalm 24 means is this, is that if you want God's grace, you have to go low. You have to live low because grace flows downhill. Grace flows flows down to the dirty and cleans them up and then ushers them into the presence of royalty, ushers them into the presence of the king of glory, ushers them into the presence of Jesus. And we see this in Psalm 24 and we see it ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus. God cannot stay away from sinners. God aggressively pursues and then he stubbornly delights in sinners who humble themselves and receive his grace. Grace comes down to the down and out and lifts them up. And that's the good news of Psalm 24. Look with me, Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1. Hear the words of the gracious God that we serve. The earth is the Lord's, the earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So David tells us two things here. Number one, God made everything in this world. And number two, God owns everything and God owns everyone that lives in his world. So right off the bat, we are humbled by this. We do not own us. We do not have autonomy, even though that's how we all live. We all live like we are the kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. We saw that back in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. We saw that we love to live with this sense of control because we all want control in every area of our lives. And David just comes along and he bursts our bubbles. God made everything and everything belongs to him. Ouch. You belong to Jesus because he made you. He owns you. The real question is this, do you belong to his kingdom? Meaning, are you one of his children? And that begs another question, how do you get into his kingdom? How do you get into the presence of this king of glory? And that's where it gets tricky and that's where it gets depressing. Because David says the only people who can enter into God's presence, the only people who can climb his holy hill, the only people who can ascend his holy hill, the only people who can stand in his presence are those who have clean hands and a pure heart and do not do what is false and deceitful. In other words, the only people who can stand in God's presence are those who are perfect Only those who have the righteousness that is required to enter into God's presence, only those people who meet the requirements of perfection stated in his law. Ouch. What this means, and this is going to sting, is that none of us have clean hands and pure hearts. We have all lifted up our souls to what is false this week, have we not? Have we all not worshipped some form of idol? We don't have clean hands. We don't have pure hearts. All week long, we all lifted up our hearts to something other than Jesus. We sin every day, all day, all the time. We all fail to meet the requirements of God's holy law. And that requirement is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There are no good people in this world. There are no good country people. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God comes down to the broken. Jesus comes down to broken people who cannot lift themselves up. He leaves his holy mountain and comes down to rescue us and comes down to redeem us and to do for us what we could not do on our own. Grace pursues us. That's what we saw last week in Psalm 23, that grace chases us down. Grace seeks the down and out and then lifts them up. Grace loves to love the unlovable. As Preston Sprinkle says, grace is more than just leniency and unconditional acceptance. Divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Yes, even the creepy ones. Grace means that despite our filth, despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, and success, 
God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. God doesn't just want to save us. He actually wants to be with us. He doesn't just love us. He actually likes us. So God removes his royal robes and steps down from his throne. Grace actually seeks out the weirdos and the winos. Grace actually seeks out the freaks and the fallen, the misfits and the uptights. Grace seeks out people like us who could never climb up or even stand in God's presence. That's what grace does. Grace reminds us that God doesn't merely save his enemies. He stubbornly delights in them. That's amazing. I think that's why John Newton titled his song Amazing Grace because the song just couldn't be titled Grace. It needed an adjective, amazing grace. It's amazing grace that pursues us and rescues us and then delights in us, the creepy ones. And I say that we are the creepy ones and I say that we are freaks and I say that we are misfits Because we stand in stark contrast to God's blazing, white-hot holiness. Here we are, sinners, rebels, freaks, misfits, scoundrels. You come up with your own word. And over here is this glorious king who created the world, who shines forth in white-hot holiness, who knows everything, sees everything, is infinitely glorious and all-powerful. And that God, that king, invites us into his presence. You can file that under amazing grace. And David tells us in verse 5 that God is the one who lifts up the down and out and credits them with this righteousness, credits them with this perfection, the perfection that they need to stand in God's presence. Look at verse five. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Grace rushes in and gives a blessing or a gift to those who cannot attain the holiness required to enter into God's White, hot, glorious presence. Literally, the word receive here is the Hebrew word nasah, which means to lift up or to carry. It's the same word that was used in verse 4 of those who do not lift up their souls to what is false. It's a word that we'll see later on in this psalm a bunch. But what David means here when he says lifts up a blessing or lifts up a gift is that undeserving sinners will be lifted up by God. They will be lifted up to God's holy hill, into his presence, a place that they can never ascend on their own. And the gift, the blessing that they are given is righteousness from God. What David is saying is that the righteous requirements of God's law, be perfect, don't ever sin, the righteous requirements of God's law, absolute 100% conformity to his law, that perfection is given to people who stand in stark contrast to God's glorious, blazing, white, hot holiness. Understand this. Grace does not just sit on the mountaintop and tell sinners to climb up 
and get up and get there and make it there because grace can't be earned. The law does that. God's law says climb up the mountain and be perfect. But grace doesn't do that. Grace doesn't beckon sinners. Grace moves down to broken sinners who can't move up. Grace seeks out the down and out and then lifts them up. And that's why I think David would tell us this today. Live low. Grace flows downhill. Grace descends down to the down and out. But grace doesn't just save us. Grace pursues us all the days of our lives. Grace just doesn't show up on the day of our salvation like a Bible salesman and say, it was nice to meet you, thanks, welcome to the kingdom. No, grace aggressively pursues and then stubbornly delights in us all of our days. As Robert Capon said, in Jesus, God has put up a gone fishing sign on the religion shop. He has done the whole job in Jesus once and for all and simply invited us to believe it, to trust the bizarre, unprovable proposition that in him, every last person on earth is already home free without a single religious exertion. No fasting to your knees fold, no prayers you have to get right or else, no standing on your head with your right thumb in your left ear and reciting the correct creed, no nothing. The entire show has been set to rights in the mystery of Christ, even though nobody can see a single improvement. Yes, it's crazy. And yes, it's wild, outrageous, and vulgar. And any God who would do such a thing is a God who has no taste. And worst of all, it doesn't sell worth beans. But it is good news. The only permanently good news there is, and therefore I find it absolutely captivating. It's a crazy idea when you think about it. The king of glory who dwells in this white hot glorious presence that would wipe all of us out in an instant. That God invites people like us, people who yell at their kids. None of you do that. People who have discussions with your spouse people who look at things on TV and the computer that they shouldn't, people who think horrendous thoughts about people who are sitting in the same room inside the sanctuary, people like that get invited to his presence. That's crazy, but it's good news. Do you find his grace absolutely captivating this morning? And what should our response be to this vulgar grace? How should we respond to the amazing grace of God? David tells us in verse six. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Literally, the Hebrew reads this way. This is the generation of those seeking him, seekers of your face, Jacob. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that points that out to you. So what is David saying here? Is he saying that we are to seek Jacob's face? This is the generation of those seeking him, seekers of your face, Jacob. Is David saying that we are to seek Jacob's face? I don't think so. What David is saying is that those who are credited with this kind of righteousness, to be able to come into God's holy presence, they seek God like Jacob. 
I think David is saying that the freaks and the misfits and the weirdos and the winos and the scoundrels and the creepy sinners who recognize that they have no business being in God's blazing, white-hot, holy present, they are so overwhelmed with that amazing grace that they seek God like Jacob. They seek God the way that Jacob sought God. And how did Jacob who was also a moral train wreck like all of us, how did he seek God? How did Jacob, a creepy, lying, swindling man who actually did swear deceitfully like verse four cautions against, how did he seek God? He pursued him with reckless abandon. In Genesis 32, when he wrestled the angel all night, Jacob told God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Oh, I know it makes some people uncomfortable to make Jacob a model. I mean, he was such a scoundrel, right? Remember all of the scheming, all of the deception? I'm I'm not suggesting you see him as an exemplary model per se, but Jacob, in spite of all his warts, in spite of his sins and his downright creepiness at times and his freakishly foul life decisions, Jacob can help us a little, and I think that's Psalm 24's point in verse 6. Those who have been floored by God's amazing grace can't help but keep seeking his face. Those who have been floored by God's amazing grace just can't help but keep on seeking his face. Those who know just how messed up they are just can't let go of the God of grace. Those who know just how sinful they are can't seem to let go of the gracious God of Psalm 24. It's like once you've tasted grace, you've got to have more. Once you've experienced God's amazing grace, you start saying things like, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's the response that grace causes. When you realize that there are no good country people and that it is only by the sheer grace of God that any of us are included in his kingdom, when you realize that, then you'll start wanting to be involved in his kingdom. James Patrick Miller said, many think that those who rest in the gospel good news of Jesus that he already accomplished all the righteousness the Father ever commands of us. Many think that these people will sit on their thumbs and apathetically coast through life. But the gospel good news and a state of gospel rest cause just the opposite in lives that have been set free from moralism and legalism and performancism. See, when you're moved by the grace of God, it should get you moving in his kingdom. When you're so moved by God's grace, it should cause you to move out and be involved in his glorious kingdom. It should cause you to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Grace should cause you to leave behind your little kingdom of self and get involved in the greatest kingdom of all. Because when you compare our little kingdoms with this infinitely glorious kingdom, it's absurd that we want to build these little kingdoms, is it not? God is saving rebels, scoundrels, misfits, weirdos, winos, prostitutes, drug addicts, child molesters, He's saving all kinds of crazy people who are bound and trapped in Adam's sin. And he's saving those kinds of people from every single nation, race, 
tribe, and tongue. That is a kingdom to be involved in, not our own little kingdoms of, I want to control the remote control. Who ate the last bagel? Let's compare the two. Who ate my last bagel? I am king. Where's my bagel? God's saving all kinds of weirdos and freaks and restoring them from every nation, race, and tribe and country in the world. Of the two, which one do you really want to be a part of? So let me just practically put it out there. And I don't mean to shame or guilt any of us. I know that shame and guilt is only temporary. It will not work long term. It only works in the short term. So don't hear what I'm about to say as me shaming you or guilting you, okay? Okay, here we go. Get involved in God's kingdom work here at Grace. The king of glory is moving and working in this church and in this city. So don't just come for coffee and music and a sermon and then leave. You've heard me say before, you can get better preaching on the radio. There are better podcasts. Come on, you can listen to Alistair Begg's accent. Not only does he have a cool accent, but he preaches truth. You could have that. If you're just coming here for the sermon and leaving, I would tell you, that dude's way better. And he's got an awesome accent. Please, don't just come for the coffee, the music, and the sermon and leave. Get involved. Do you know anybody here? Do you really know anybody? Do they know you? Don't just celebrate grace for an hour and a half every week and then not be connected to the king's people. We're a family here, a family of weirdos and misfits and freaks. But God has rescued us. He has redeemed us, and he has put us into this family, his adopted family and there are some creepy people here and there are some weird people here but this is the family that God has put you in please be involved here please get plugged in here now where do you start check out our discipleship fair that's going on in the gym right now you'll find information about our ministries here at Grace information about ministries that can help you be involved in our city so please go there and get the coffee that you love and mingle around and find out where can you get plugged in where can you be involved Don't just come for the coffee, the music, and the sermon. Get plugged in. And get plugged in in these two ways. I hope and pray for grace that every single person here is involved in these two ways for sure. Number one, serve. Find a place to serve somewhere. Make the coffee. That coffee that you enjoy will not just brew itself. You can just come and make coffee. That's a very important part of our ministry here, is it not? Or you could greet people as they arrive and just say, welcome, the Lord bless you. Or you could serve at either of our welcome centers. Or you could serve kids in youth ministry, kids ministry. You can make meals for people. People that end up in the hospital need a meal for a while. You could change diapers in the nursery. Come on, someone out there has to have the gift of changing diapers. We actually need people right now to hold babies in the nursery. Did you know that? It's a real need for us right now. Do you love babies? Who doesn't love babies? If you don't love babies, you're weird. But you're welcome here because we got a lot of weirdos here. A lot of weirdos who love mayonnaise here. But do you, do you love babies? Who doesn't love babies? You could come here every week and serve your king, serve the glorious king, Jesus. You could serve your king every single week by just holding a little baby in the nursery so that that mom can come here and hear the word of God preached. We have lots of babies, so we need lots of baby holders. I don't know what's in the water here, 
But we have babies everywhere and they keep coming and that's a good thing. And if you don't like babies and you don't like kids, you don't like children, then you won't like this church because they're everywhere. The bottom line is this, find a place to serve. Just one place to serve. And if you don't know where to start, ask someone. Call the church office, email one of the staff. Just serve somewhere. Get plugged in by serving. Secondly, get plugged in in some form of fellowship. Join a small group. Take a Grace Seminary class. They're starting up on September 13th. You can meet people there, build relationships. Attend a regular ongoing Sunday school class. Or or meet people at Starbucks each week and talk about the Bible. I meet with two guys on Tuesday morning that pour into my life. I pour into theirs. They know all my junk. I know all their junk. Tuesday morning is the best day of the week for me. Get plugged into some form of discipleship where you can be challenged. You can be encouraged. You can be prayed for. And then where you can do those things for others too. Get involved in some form of community discipleship where you can talk about the Bible, study the Bible, talk about theology, study theology, learn and grow and encourage and be encouraged. So my hope and prayer is that every single person in this church body would be involved and plugged in in these two ways. They would be serving somewhere and they would be in some sort of fellowship, discipleship, relationship. And if you're scared to jump in here at Grace, then I'll just simply tell you this. Live low, grace flows downhill. Are you scared to serve and nervous to get plugged in? There's grace for that. Just live low, humble yourself, and grace will flow down to you. And it's people who have tasted grace who want to see that grace spread to others. So will you join us on mission to do that? Will you join us on mission? Our mission statement here is that we exist to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Will you join us on that mission? Will you join us as we do our best by God's grace to stay busy making disciples, making disciples, that you're, you're making disciples who know how to go and make disciples, who know how to go and make disciples. Will you be involved with us in that process here at Grace and in our city? What will empower you to do that is if you get a taste of grace, a taste of the good news of the gospel. And that's exactly what David will talk about next in verses seven through 10. So look there. He says this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The imagery that David has in mind here is one where the Ark of the Covenant would return to the city of Jerusalem after battle. And the people would be waiting, anticipating its return so they could celebrate the fact that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gave Israel victory over her enemies. That's the imagery that's behind verses 7 through 10. And it's such a gospel-saturated image. God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. Jesus just can't seem to get close enough to his people. And the Ark of the Covenant pointed to that reality. How amazing that God put his roots down in the backwoods of Israel. In the middle of these country folk, in the middle of these rednecks, if you will, God said, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So in the middle of the backwoods of Judah, 
God came down and lived. The God who created everything and owned everything and owned everybody in creation, he chose to live in the middle of some good country people in the city of David, Jerusalem. This is where they housed the Ark of the Covenant, in the backwoods of Israel. The God who created the entire universe confined himself to a mere 11 acres in the sticks of Israel. And it was in the city of David, Jerusalem, that the Ark of the Covenant was brought to stay after battle. So after each battle, they would anticipate the return of the Ark. But is David speaking of the city gates and the doors literally in verses 7 through 10? Is David literally talking to these city gates and doors? And do they literally ask David questions? I don't think so. I don't think the city gates and the doors are literally asking David, who is this king of glory that you speak of? I think David is actually speaking about and speaking to the citizens of Jerusalem who would be near the gates of the city. Now let me explain. In ancient Israel, the city gates were were not just gates. They would have rooms on either side of the entrance of the city gates. And in these rooms, they would store things. They would keep animals there. The elders of the city would go and sit there and make decisions. And then just inside the gates, the entranceway into the city would be this open area where the business of the town would be conducted. And I think David is addressing all of the people who would be gathered around the city gates and the doors. In fact, if you remember from the book of Ruth, when Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth, he told her this, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The phrase, all my fellow townsmen in Hebrew, is the whole gate of my people. Boaz wasn't saying that the actual city gates, the actual city doors, knew that Ruth was a worthy woman. He was saying that the people gathered there, they knew Ruth's character. So sometimes the people of the city were referred to as gates. It's like we say sometimes, the courts have spoken and decided. It's personify we personify these things so the imagery here is one of the lord returning from battle and the people at the city gates would be worried about the battle wondering if they were won if they won wondering if they were defeated so in psalm 24 david is calling on the people of god he's calling on the gates and the doors the people to rejoice because god has won the word to the people of god is to lift up your heads or lift your spirits and rejoice that the lord has won Now, what's really interesting about all of this is the use of that word lift, which you can see repeated throughout this psalm, and then especially here in verses 7 through 10. The Hebrew word for lift is nasah. It's spelled like nasa, which I find very interesting. Lift, nasa, but it's nasah. And it can mean three three things. Number one, it can mean to lift or to lift up. And that's how David used it in verse 7. He says, lift up your heads, O gates. He wants the people not to be downcast and despair and downtrodden. He says, lift up your heads. It can also be used in a way that means to bear or to carry. It's used in the Old Testament of someone bearing their guilt. And then the third way that the Hebrew word nasah is used, it's to take or to take away. What's interesting is that it is often used of our sins being taken away, our sins being forgiven. 
Here are a few examples of the Hebrew word nasah, where it means to forgive. Not to lift up or to bear, but actually it means to forgive. And these are some famous examples. In Genesis 18.24, when Abraham is, about, is asking God about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare nasah, not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And in Genesis 50, verse 17, when Joseph is in the process of forgiving his brothers, they say, say to Joseph, please forgive Nassau, the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive Nassau, the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And in Exodus 32, 32, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and discovers that Israel had made the golden calf and worshiped it, he tells the Lord, but now if you will not forgive their, or if you will forgive their sin, Nassau. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. If you're not gonna forgive them, then wipe me out too. And then right after the golden calf incident, the Lord appeared in Exodus 34, verse seven. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving Nassau, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's many other examples. Here's one more. Psalm 32, one, David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, Nassau, whose sin is covered. So the Hebrew word Nassau means to forgive in some context. Now, I said all of that to show you that the word lift, nasah, can have different meanings. And I think those different meanings are seen here in verses 7 through 10. So I think verses 7 through 10 should read like this. Lift up, nasah. Lift up your heads. In other words, don't be depressed. Don't despair, O gates, O people of the city. And be forgiven, nasah. O ancient doors, O people of the city that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads. In other words, don't be depressed. Don't despair, O gates, meaning O people of the city, and be forgiven, O ancient doors, O people of the city, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of armies. He is the king of glory. Now the reason why I translate verses seven and nine as be forgiven is because these are in the nifal stem in Hebrew. It's uh, the the passive reflexive stem. It's an imperative here that's telling them you need to be forgiven. It's passive on their part. They're imperatives in verses seven and nine, and they're telling us to be forgiven. They are assisting us in absolution. They are telling us to be forgiven, that we are forgiven. So Yahweh, the king of glory, can come in, meaning he can come into our hearts and lives. So David is essentially saying this, lift up your heads, lift your spirits, and be forgiven. God wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with you. The king of glory wants to come into your life. The glorious king, the king of the universe, the king who made everything in this world, he invites sinners into his presence and credits them with his righteousness. This is the greatest news in the universe. Jesus is infinitely glorious and infinitely gracious. Jesus is mighty in battle and merciful to the broken. Jesus fights for us and he forgives us. Jesus is 
awesome and he is approachable. And so the Cliff's Notes version of Psalm 24 is this. Number one, the king reigns over all of creation. Number two, who can enter into his presence? No one, because no one is good enough. Number three, rejoice. The king of glory comes to rescue sinners and to be with them. Psalm 24 is saying this. Lift up your heads and don't be downcast. Be forgiven. The king of glory comes to dwell with sinners. The good news of the gospel is that God delights in and wants to be with his people. He wants to enter into our lives and our hearts and be with us, his people. See, God had to move down to our level because we could not go up to his. We could not ascend his holy hill. That's why God sent Jesus. Jesus left his royal throne, took off his robe, and came down to us and was made just like us in every way, sin being the only exception. He never sinned. He lived the life we were called to live. He died the death that we all deserve. He was resurrected and then he ascended the hill, holy hill of the Lord and entered into the holy of holies in heaven. And there he stands as our high priest. Lift your heads today, Christians. Lift your heads. Have your spirits lifted this morning by the gospel. Jesus was lifted up on the cross for your sin. He lifted your sin, meaning he took away your sin. So rejoice. Rejoice this morning. That's what Psalm 24 is telling us. Rejoice. Don't just agree with grace. Rejoice over grace. Don't just say, well, I agree that God is gracious and forgives us of our sins. That's right on theology. Don't just agree with grace. Rejoice over it that you are forgiven. Rejoice over God's crazy grace that seeks out sinners and forgives them. Your sins are forgiven, Christian. Welcome the king of glory into your life. He forgives you. He has clothed you with his righteousness. Don't be downcast. Don't despair. Be lifted up. And it's all because of grace. Because grace flows downhill. We'll close with this thought by Brennan Manning. My life is a witness to vulgar grace. A grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at ten till five. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request. Please remember me and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, it's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all of our might to try to find something or someone that it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. 
Grace uses broken people like us to build God's kingdom. The raw material that Jesus uses to build his glorious kingdom, that raw material that he uses is our mess and our brokenness. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. It's, it's vulgar. It's different. It doesn't sit well with us when somebody else is on the receiving end of it and we don't think they should be. It's just out of this world that you would send your son to take our place on the cross, to die the death we should have died. That you would credit us with the perfect life he lived so that we could be with you forever. It's amazing that you don't just love us, God, you like us, you want to be with us. That is so out of this world. It's grace. I have no other word, Father. Thank you for your son. May your spirit impress your word deep into the nooks and crannies of our hearts that we would leave today having our souls lifted up, having our spirits lifted because Jesus was lifted up for us. In whose name we pray, amen.